Okay, tonight we're going to talk about Esther. We have four weeks left, including tonight. Next week is Noah. The week after that is Samuel. And the last week is Nehemiah. But tonight we're talking about Esther. One of my favorite things to do in life is to go to bookstores, uh, just to be in a bookstore, to look around a bookstore. I don't have to buy anything. I just like to go in bookstores. Uh, Odessa is in short supply when it comes to bookstores. There's one downtown, and it really doesn't count because there's too many cats that live there. So if you've ever been in there, you know what I'm talking about. So the next best thing, if you like uh, books and bookstores, is Amazon. And Amazon is a a great thing, Facebook. And one of the great things about Amazon is uh, they can read your mind. You even know that you want it. And so when you get on Amazon, there's this nice thing that says recommendations for you. And I love to get on there and click on the recommendations and see what Amazon thinks that I would like. And uh, recently, Amazon, I've not bought this yet, but Amazon suggested that I buy a book by a guy named John Zane. Um, John Zane is uh, author of this book called The Top Ten. He's a professor, a journalist, and an author. He lives in North Carolina. And he wrote this book in 2007. It's kind of an interesting book. It's a book about books. So here's what he did. He gathered up 125 influential, contemporary, living novelists, authors. And he got them together and he said, I want each of you to write down the top 10 novels of all time. So 125 people. He said, I'm going to give you a piece of paper with 10 lines on it. And I want your top 10 of all time. It's interesting that there were only 544 books mentioned. All the different books that these 125 people picked, there was only 544 of them. 353 were what he calls one-hit wonders. They only showed up once. Which if you kind of crunch the math on the number of people and rankings and all of that, it means there was a decent amount of consensus uh, on what these, these greatest books were. And so I'll just put them up on the, on the screen. I think this is interesting. Uh, Anna Karenina, Madame Bovary, War and Peace, Lolita, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I read that one, and you're like, yes, I've read one on that list. Thank goodness. Hamlet, Great Gatsby, In Search of Lost Time, Stories of Anton Chekhov, and Middlemarch. Anybody read more than one on that list? You guys are the greatest. So smart. He also published, if you're curious for this sort of thing, um, by the way, here's how he got that list, okay? Everybody made their top ten. If you showed up as number one on the list, you got ten points. That book got ten points. If you were number two on the list, you got nine points. If you were number three on the list, all the way down, you get the idea. And so then he added up all the math and crunched all the numbers. He also did the same thing with authors. He took out book titles and just went with how often authors showed up on the same list. And this is the list of authors. Tolstoy, Shakespeare, Joyce, Nabokov, Dostoevsky, Faulkner, Dickens, Chekhov, Flaubert, and Austin. So there you go. Um, You may just be saying this is irrelevant and I don't care about this. But here's my point. I like lists like this. I like top 10s or top 20s, and I don't care if it's greatest athletes. I don't care if it's greatest songs. I don't care if we're talking about greatest Mexican food restaurants in Odessa, whatever you want to talk about. I like lists, and this one is interesting to me, the best stories, basically, that he's coming up with. So it got me thinking when I read this, if we just ranked in the Bible the best stories in the Bible, and you just took a poll, and you asked people to write down their top ten. I think there would be a lot of things you would expect to show up on those lists, right? Uh, The story of Noah would probably show up, Noah and the ark. Uh, Young and old are familiar with that. People who haven't read the Bible probably know what Noah's ark is, if you throw that out. Probably Daniel and the lion's den. People have heard of Daniel and the lions, and people know about that. Uh, Maybe if you wanted to give the Sunday school answer and we would think you're so spiritual, you would say, well, Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the Christmas story, or the crucifixion, or Easter, or something like that. I'm just going to be honest with you, though. If you're talking about the greatest stories in the Bible from a literary perspective, what is the best piece of literature writing and storytelling? 
you got to have Esther pretty high up on the list. And you can read a number of different literary critics, both Christian and non-Christian, who look at the book of Esther and say, this is a masterpiece of storytelling. It is a brilliant piece of literature. And you're probably familiar with Esther. Here's my guess, though. If I asked you to sit down and write out the story or just tell the story in order, I bet you could throw out a lot of the pieces. I'm not sure you could get them all in order as they actually happen in the story itself. And so we're going to kind of walk through and talk about this story tonight. Here's a quote to start us off from Marvin, or excuse me, Mervin Brenneman. He says, The book of Esther is the story of a woman and her role in the deliverance of the Jews from the murderous plot of Haman in the Persian Empire during the reign of Xerxes. In the Old Testament, Esther resembles the stories of Ruth and Deborah, two women whom God used for his plan. With Esther, however, there is a unique twist in that God is not referred to even once in the entire narrative. It's for this reason, presumably, that Esther apparently was not used at Qumran. And he kind of, this is out of a commentary, and he kind of goes into some inside baseball here. You may say, what in the world is Qumran? So I'll put a picture up right here and show you uh, some caves that are located in Qumran. So here's the story. This is almost too good to be true, okay? In the 40s. There's a shepherd boy. In this place, you can see where Qumran is up just sort of on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. He's keeping some sheep, and he's bored. So he picks up rocks. There's lots of rocks out there. So he picks up rocks, and he starts chucking rocks, trying to hit targets. And he chucks a rock, and it just happens to sort of go over this rise in a cave. And he's hearing these rocks land, thud, thud. But then he throws this one, and it goes in this hole in this cave, and he hears a piece of pottery break. It's like the panic your kids feel when they break the neighbor's window with the baseball or something like that. Except he's out in the desert and he says, what in the world was that? So he goes to check it out and he finds this cave. And inside this cave, there's all these clay pots. And inside these clay pots, there are scrolls. You know those scrolls today. You've probably heard of them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what happened is there was this ancient community at Qumran, this group of Jewish people that lived. They were kind of, just be honest, they were kind of a bunch of weirdos. And they lived out in the wilderness. And they kind of had their own little hippie community before that was even a thing. And they left all these scrolls in these caves, in these jars out there. And the climate was perfect and the location was perfect and nobody knew they were there. And they just sat there for hundreds of years until scholars found them. And what they found is a number of things, but most importantly, they found most of the Old Testament. And it was very interesting to scholars that they found these scrolls that had been sitting there forever, and there was all these people arguing that you couldn't trust the Old Testament, it wasn't reliable, it had been changed and tweaked and all this stuff. And here are these very, very ancient scrolls, and they took them and they put them side by side, side by side, and they said, well, Isaiah, word for word, Exactly right. Different fragments, they would line up and they'd say it's, it, it confirms the Old Testament. It's an amazing, amazing archaeological find. They found at least fragments, either complete books or fragments, of all 39 Old Testament books except Esther. Nothing from Esther. And we don't know exactly why, but the presumption is Esther never mentions God in the whole book. And in ancient times, at least this community felt like because God was not mentioned at all in the book, it maybe shouldn't be included in Scripture. That was this one isolated community only. Jewish tradition said Esther does belong in the canon of Scripture, and Christian tradition agrees with that. And so we'll pick up with the the quote saying this, Regardless of its status at Qumran, Esther belongs in our Old Testament. It is a story of faithfulness, courage, and irony. Most of all, it's the story of how the Jewish people survived a planned pogrom. And I'll be honest with you, when I read that, I thought it was a typo. I had to look up the word. And basically, it means a plan to exterminate a group of people, like an attempt at genocide. So it doesn't mean program, it's pogrom. That would have meant their end. Only one conclusion can be reached when the book is read. God was behind it all. And that's an interesting conclusion when you read through a book that not one time mentions God. And that presents Esther and Mordecai as pretty important 
to come to the end of it and say, you know what? This really isn't a book about Esther. This is a book about God and how he used these people to save his people. So let's jump in. Let's talk about Esther. Let's put her in the storyline of the Old Testament. She comes way at the end in the periods that we would call exile and return. And she's unique in some of the characters that we're talking about in that she sort of fits into two of these different slots. She lived during this period of exile, but she also lived during the time when some of the Jewish people were beginning to go home and beginning to come back. So when you look through that timeline, you start with creation, you end up with this exile in return, you understand the very next step on the timeline is the coming of Jesus. This is the very end of the Old Testament that we're talking about, timeline-wise. Even though Esther's right in the middle of the Old Testament, chronologically, we're right at the end of the timeline before Jesus is born. So I've given you a few scriptures here. We're not going to look at, uh, at these and read these. I'll just mention 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 24 and 25 are the stories of how first the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered in 722 BC by the Assyrians and taken into exile and then if you keep reading in 2 Kings you can read about the southern kingdom of Judah conquered by the Babylonians sort of a multi-phase deal but it really was about 586 BC that they got taken into exile both for their idolatry so that has happened that's the exile Um, Just to sort of give you a visual on some of this, I'll put a couple of maps up. And uh, I know those are hard to see. They're kind of small. The map up on the top left is the Assyrian Empire. So this is the world superpower when the northern kingdom of Israel gets taken into exile. You can see Nineveh in red, or you can just see the red up towards the top. That's the capital. Judah and Israel down on the bottom left. The picture up on the top right, you see the the empire sort of gets the top shaved off of it. It's about the only difference. This is the Babylonian Empire. This is the world superpower when Judah gets taken into exile. Down on the bottom left is the Persian Empire, and you see it kind of swells a little bit. The, The controlled territory grows, and the capital of the Persian Empire is Susa, and you see Judah over Uh, there on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. This map on the bottom left would be the world superpower when the book of Esther takes place. takes place during the Persian Empire. You read about the city of Susa. So that's the bottom left. The bottom right is Greece. And then, no, that's okay. Go ahead to the next one. The next one is Rome. And you see that we sort of look at a different part of the world when the Romans take over. But that gives you at least some idea of of who's running the world and what their kingdoms look like. Esther is interesting. Um, In my brain, when I think about books in the Bible, I put Esther in the category with Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, Esther. And what's interesting is that you could actually, if you wanted to make it chronological, you could actually take Ezra, cut it in half, and put Esther in the middle of it. Then tack Nehemiah onto the end. So it it doesn't really fit timeline-wise to have it the way it is, but uh, that's a whole other story and a whole other lesson. Um, You take Ezra 1 to 6, the first half of Ezra, the exiles go back, and they go back to rebuild the temple with a guy named Zerubbabel. Cyrus sends them back to rebuild the temple. And then there's a break between Ezra 6, the end of Ezra 6, and the beginning of Ezra 7. You don't read about it in the text, but it's there. And in between that, you could squeeze the book of Esther. That's when Esther takes place. Then you pick up with Ezra 7, and Ezra comes back with a group of exiles, and his job is to teach the law to the people who now have this new temple. And then you add Nehemiah at the end of that when they rebuild the walls. So you can fit it right in there between Ezra 6 and 7. The last piece of context is Esther chapter 1. And I thought about putting this in into Esther's life, but really she doesn't show up in chapter 1. So if we're just going to talk about her life, uh, Esther 1 is part of the context. And we're not going to read it. It's a really interesting story. We, read, we meet two people, uh, a king named Ahasuerus and his queen who is named Vashti. Most Bible scholars say that Ahasuerus and Vashti, biblical names in the book of Esther, are what historians know, or who historians know, as Xerxes and Amestris. So sometimes Bible translations go ahead and instead of Ahasuerus, they put in Xerxes. And the story is really kind of amusing, just to be honest with you. Kind of depressing, kind of amusing, 
the king throws a party, and it's a big party, and it's basically a keg party for all his officials, and uh, it's open bar for a long time. Just come and drink all you want, and it goes exactly like you would expect a keg party to go. It ends up with the king and his buddies deciding that Queen Vashti, who the text says, tells you specifically, was beautiful to look at. They say in their drunkenness, we should get Vashti to come out here and let us check her out. Seems like a good idea. So they send word to the queen, come out here. Let us gaze upon you. It means exactly what you think it means. She says, you've lost your ever-loving mind. There's no way I'm doing that. And the king and his buddies in this drunken stupor are just mortified that she would defy the king. And his buddies give him some really lousy advice, and for whatever reason, he goes along with it. Um, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, all through the book, he kind of comes off as a pushover. He kind of comes off as people are manipulating him all the way through the book, and it begins right here. And uh, they come up with this edict. It's his buddies and himself. And the edict is the queen is never allowed to appear before him again. And this is sort of the funny part. They send a message through the whole empire to all of the women that they should do whatever their husbands say. Sort of damage control. Because they say, look, word's going to get out that the queen doesn't do what you tell her and all bets are going to be off and the ladies are going to start running the show. So we need an edict. What we need is a declaration. And you can imagine the women throughout the empire reading this. Okay. Whatever you say. But the edict goes out and uh, that's chapter 1. So now we come to Esther. And we meet Esther. We're just going to jump in with her marriage. We could talk about her life as an exile, her life as a a resident alien, so to speak. But we're just going to jump in and talk about her marriage. The king sobers up eventually. And the king realizes, once he's sober, I really did have a pretty wife. And now I have popped off in my drunken stupor and said that she can never appear in my presence again, which is kind of a bummer if you're the king. So the king uh, comes up with an idea, and that idea has been passed down to us in the form of The Bachelor reality TV show. And he gets this first harem together and all these beautiful women. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about this. I do want to acknowledge that The text that you read in Esther is very modest and very restrained in how it describes what happens. But you know what kind of man this is. You know his character. And you know what he's after. And I don't don't want to suggest that you try to read between the lines too much. I just want you to understand the text is very restrained in how it describes this successive nights of beauty pageants and women being portrayed before him and spending the night with him. And all I'll just say is I think most of these nights went like you would assume it would go with the most powerful man in the world parading these poor women into his chamber night after night after night. Esther gets wrapped into this. And let's just read a few verses in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read this paragraph. It says, There was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. So that tells you at least one thing about uh, Mordecai. When they hauled these people into exile, they didn't take the riffraff. They didn't take the lowest of the low. They took the brightest of the bright and the best of the best and the most educated and the most talented. So it tells you when they picked Mordecai to be taken into exile, they're picking somebody that they at least had some respect for. So they take him, they carry him away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, who is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father 
nor mother. And you sort of read that and you wonder, did she have no father and mother before the exile happened? Did she lose her father and her mother in the exile? The text says she didn't have a father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young, women, the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred. That's a verse you need to underline, verse 10. She had not made known her people or her kindred. Why? For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Just one thing I thought about as I read this. We'll read a few more verses in this chapter. Corey taught on Daniel a few weeks back and he made a great point. He said, when you get to heaven someday, don't ask for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You need to ask for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their Jewish names. They didn't go by the other names. That was an, an add-on. And we call the book Esther, and we talk about Esther, but when you get to heaven someday, you don't need to say, where's Esther? You need to say, where's Hadassah? Where can I find this woman that I've read about in the Old Testament? Look at chapter 2, verse 16. We'll just read a few more verses here. It says, Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, into his royal palace in the tenth Month, which is the month of Tibeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. You imagine that probably made her nervous. But he gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So this is all good. Uh, Esther sort of works out for her, and you keep reading. It continues to work out for her family. Uncle Mordecai is walking through the gates of the city one day, and he hears a couple of guys whispering over in the corner, and they're whispering about a plan to kill the king. And Mordecai hears about it, And he doesn't really blow anything up, but he goes straight to Esther and he says to Esther, Hey, I heard something. You need to know about it. You need to pass it to the king. You have access to him. And so he passes the plot on and Esther passes the plot on and it's foiled and the king lives. And the text tells you that this great deed of Mordecai, which seemingly happens by chance, is written down in the books. And you say, well, this, this is great. Things are going well for this family. Esther is now queen. Mordecai gets his name written down in the book with an A-plus or a check mark or a smiley face or whatever you want to call it. And then you come to chapter 3 and you realize that it's not all good. Look who you meet in chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. And I don't know if this is true or not. I've heard, I've heard it said a couple of times that when Jewish people gather together and tell this story... They teach their children, every time Haman is mentioned, they should boo. And I've tried to do this with kids before, and it works for about four times they boo, and then they forget, and you realize they're not listening to me anymore. They didn't hear Haman. So you don't have to boo every time we mention Haman, but just keep that in mind. Haman the Agagite. I know there's lots of, uh, yeah, y'all are funny, there's lots of ites in the Bible, and The Agagites, my guess is, probably do not ring a bell for you. So we're just going to pause in Esther, and I want you to understand why this guy Haman, we're going to discover, wants to murder the Jewish people so badly. I mean, he's fanatical. The things that set him off are not that big a deal, and he really has a great life, 
and 99.9% of what he wants to happen in life is happening, and there's this .001% that just really gets under his craw, and his response is, we're going to kill all the Jews because of it. Because Mordecai, one Jew, won't bow down to me when everyone else does. We should exterminate all the people. And you read it, and you say, well, that's kind of over the top. Why in the world would he say that? So hold your spot in Esther. Flip back to Exodus chapter 17. Let's string a few things together. Exodus 17. Do you remember the battle that the Israelites fought when they came out of Egypt? They fought with a group of people called the Amalekites. And it was a really strange battle where Joshua led the people to fight. And Moses stands up on a hill and he puts his arms up in the air. With the staff. And as long as his hands are up in the air, Israel wins the battle. But then when his arms get tired and he takes a break, the Amalekites start winning the battle. So he gets some guys to help hold his hands up. And it's a strange story. And uh, eventually they hold him up, hold the hands up. In verse 13, Exodus 17 13 says this Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. And recited in the ears of Joshua, I will, the future, right? I will in the future utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar, called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So here's the deal. God says in the future, you just won this battle, but in the future I'm going to blot these people out completely. Not now but I'm going to do it in the future. There's going to be this conflict for many generations. So you fast forward, and look, that's kind of a minor thing. We just skipped right over it when we went through the book of Exodus. We didn't really talk about that at all. So you just skip through it, and you go on, and you go through the period of the conquest with Joshua, and you go through the period of the judges in the book of Judges, and through Ruth, and all of that stuff, and you get in through Samuel, and then you meet the first king of Israel, Saul. And you read in 1 Samuel 15 a story. We're not going to look at it. You can look it up later. 1 Samuel 15. Saul goes into battle against a group of people, and they're called the Amalekites. And what does God say to Saul in that battle? He says, you kill them all. Everything. Nothing lives. And in one hand, I think you see the patience of God. That he has given the Amalekites generation after generation after generation, decade after decade after decade, to repent, to change, to rethink things, and they haven't done it. And he finally says to Saul, look, Saul, it's time to cash in that promise that I gave way, 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 way back in Exodus. Saul, I want you to kill them all. We read that command and we think, well, that seems kind of arbitrary. But if they knew the law, if they knew the Old Testament, bells are going off and they're saying, yeah, God said that this was going to happen. It's time for it to happen. Now, do you remember what happened in that battle? Did Saul do what the Lord commanded him to do? He saved the best. He saved the king, whose name was Agag, Haman the Agagite a descendant of this king. And he saves him. And he saves some of the sheep. And you remember the story. Maybe Corey will talk about this. I don't want to steal his thunder, but Samuel comes walking into camp and there's this famous line of, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? You were supposed to kill them all. And Saul says, well, you know, I haven't really disobeyed. I saved the best and... uh, you can, you can almost see the wheels turning. He says, we were going to offer a sacrifice. That's what we were going to do. We were going to take the best of the best and, and offer some sort of sacrifice. And Samuel, it is one of the greatest stories in the whole Bible. Samuel basically says, you have not obeyed the Lord. And he picks up a sword. They bring out Agag. And the text says, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. You say, that's kind of extreme. But he did what God told him to do. And he wiped out this king. His line wasn't wiped out because Saul didn't wipe them all out in the battle. And you have this small trickle come down from Agag, 
all the way through all the kings of Israel and Judah, all the way through the exile, all the way till the end of the exile, and we meet this guy named Haman the Agagite. And guess what? He's holding a grudge, and he's mad. And when this Jewish guy Mordecai won't bow down to him, his response is, we're going to wipe him out, and we're going to kill him all. He comes up with a plan uh, for whatever reason. The text makes it seem pretty coincidental. He says, we're going to roll the dice, and whatever date comes up on the dice, that's when we're going to wipe them all out. We're going to kill all the Jews in the, in the kingdom, and the dice fall to a certain thing. The Hebrew word for dice is pur, P-U-R, pur. If there's more than one, it's called purim, P-U-R-I-M, purim. And they pick this day to kill the Jews. That brings us to stage number two in Esther's life, and we're going to call it decision. Decision. Mordecai finds out about it, and he goes to Esther. Remember, we underlined, I think it was chapter 2, verse 10, or maybe it was 3, verse 10, that said Esther did not tell the king that she was Jewish. Mordecai told her, do not tell the king. No one knows that she's Jewish. And uh, Mordecai goes to her and says, look, here's the deal. Haman's come up with this plan. He's going to kill all of us. And he's appealing to Esther to help and to intervene. And Esther says, here's the thing. Uh, I haven't been called into the king's presence for a month. No explanation given. Did they have a fight? Did he find a new wife? No, no explanation as to why. But she just says, I, I haven't been called into his presence. And she says to Mordecai, you know as well as I do that if I just waltz right in there, he could kill me on the spot. So if you're asking me to walk into his presence and talk to him about this, you're asking me to take my life into my own hands, essentially. And look what we read in Esther 4, verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. I don't know exactly how to take that verse, but I think what Mordecai is saying to her is, someone's going to find you out. I realize nobody knows you're Jewish, but somebody's going to rat you out. Somehow it's going to come out. Don't think that you can skate through this. And you can understand the temptation in Esther's mind would have been to do exactly that. Well, this is rough for you guys, but all I have to do is lay low. I mean, I'm the queen. And no one knows I'm Jewish. If I just keep my mouth shut, I can ride this thing out. He says, I don't, I don't think so. You're not going to escape. Verse 14, he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Again, that's a fascinating verse. I think Mordecai is wrestling with the whole thing. And he seems to say, look, God can save his people however he wants to save them. The line's not going to be extinguished. Mordecai's not worried about that. God's going to save them somehow. But it may not end well for you, he says. Mordecai goes on. Who knows? This is the verse you may be familiar with from the whole book. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and he did everything as Esther ordered, had ordered him. So she reaches this decision that she's going to go to the king. That brings us to stage three, which we'll call banquets. Banquets. This is one of the most interesting parts of the whole book in my mind. When I read through the book, this is the part I come back to and I, I think about the most. There's this fast, and she decides she's going to go. She walks in, and there's a moment of tension of how the king will respond to her, and he responds favorably. He says, I'm glad to see you. What do you want? Up to half the kingdom, whatever it is, just name it. I'll give it to you. And when you've read the story, you expect her to just blurt it out, right? This is what it's all been building up to, to just say, hey, we got a problem. 
I'm a Jew and my people are about to be exterminated. There's about to be a pogrom against us. And instead, she walks in and he says, what do you want? And she says, let's go on a date. And let's bring Haman. So you say, well, okay, maybe she has something up her sleeves here. Maybe she's, she's got a plan. So they have this, this date and Haman comes and he shows up and you think, okay, this is when she's going to do it. And she's going to spill the beans, right? She's going to tell him. That's what it's, Haman's there and the king's there. She's going to say it. And she doesn't say it. And in my mind, I've wondered, did she chicken out for a moment? I know that's almost sacrilegious to people who look up to Esther and think, no, she's the greatest. But did she just get in the room and say, oh, I can't do it. I don't know. What she does say is, could we have dinner tomorrow? Maybe it was part of her master plan. Maybe she wanted to have this first dinner to feel things out, and then she was going to rethink things and reevaluate. Maybe there just wasn't the right moment. Maybe she's stalling for time, hoping that something will happen. Anyway, she doesn't spill the beans, and she says, let's have dinner uh, tomorrow night. Haman leaves, and Haman thinks this is the greatest This is great. I'm in tight with the most powerful two people in the whole empire. Life is fantastic. It just so happens that he's reminded when he sees Mordecai that I still have this Jew that won't bow down to me. And he just, he goes into a rage and he starts to talk to people about what am I, what am I going to do about this? What needs to happen? And they say, you just need to kill this guy. Kill him. Just be done with him. So they devise a plan to kill him. Some Bible translations make it sound like they're going to hang him. Most Bible scholars think it wasn't a hanging with a noose, but it was actually a tall pole that they were going to toss him on top of and just impale him. Either way, they come up with this plan to kill him. And it just so happens that night, the night after the first banquet, that the king goes to bed and he's got heartburn, indigestion, Maybe it was something Esther served him. She, she served him, you know, enchiladas or something. And he laid down that night and he just couldn't go to sleep. I don't know. And he, he can't go to sleep. And so he says, you know what would really put me to sleep? Is if you read me some of the great things about me. He's a humble guy, right? I'd like, to, I'd like you to read to me about my life. Get my scrapbook out from back home and let's relive the glory days. So they get the book out. All the things that have been written about this guy, they get the book, they just happen to pull the right one off the shelf, they just happen to open it to the right page, and they say, <clears throat> once upon a time, there was a man named Mordecai, and he overheard a plot to kill the king, and he saved his life. And the king says, I remember that. What did we do for that guy? Do we have a party? No. Did we get a cake from H-E-B with his name on it? No. Do we send him a, one of those flower fruit bouquets and say thank you? No, no. And he, King eventually goes to sleep and he thinks, we've we got to make that right. That guy saved my life. So the king's thinking about this the next morning. In walks Haman. And the king says, Haman, I'm glad you're here. I have a question. You remember where Haman left off? My life is great except for this one thing. The king loves me. Esther loves me. Everything's perfect except for... Except for Mordecai. The king says, Haman, I got somebody in my life I want to do something really special for. I mean, I want it to be top notch. What do you think I should do? And Haman, living in his own world, thinks, this is for me. So what would I want done for me? Well, I think you should give give this guy one of your robes. And I think you should uh, give him one of your Animals, let him ride through the town in one of your animals. Let him take your Corvette for a spin through the streets. And I think you should make everyone bow down to him. Everyone. And the king says, I couldn't have come up with anything better myself. I was going to go with the fruit basket, but that's way better. (laughs) Way better. I want you to go find Mordecai, and I want you to do that for him. And so here's Haman giving the robe to Mordecai, putting him on the animal, leading him through the streets, 
talking to everyone about how great Mordecai is. And this, I told you what was to me the most interesting. The most interesting thing to me is why didn't Esther say something at the first banquet? This is the funniest part of the whole book. It's in chapter 6. Haman has led Mordecai all the way through the town. And look what we read in Esther 6, 12. It says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him. Thank you to your wife and your best friends. You bare your soul to them and you lay out all your troubles and they look at it and they basically say, you're a dead man. This is not going to end well for you. Then comes banquet number two. Look at Esther chapter 7. Banquet 2, she rats out Haman. Look at chapter 7. We'll just read verse 7 to 10. This is after Esther says it's Haman. He's a foe and an enemy. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. Again, you read that and you think, well, that's not. That's a kind of a curveball. You expect the king to make a decree or to say something, but for whatever reason, he goes out in the garden to calm down or to think about it, and it says, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, you remember, he's drunk, the king, He says, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? He's begging for his life. And the king walks in and says, it looks like you're putting the moves on my wife. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, moreover, the gallows or the stake that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. That brings us to the last stage of Esther's life, which is Savior. Savior. And we won't read any of this. I'll just summarize it. The silly law in this kingdom, in this empire, the Persians, is that you cannot reverse a decree of the king. Once it's written, it's written. They can't take it back. So they just... Pass a new decree, and the new decree is on such and such dates, the date that we rolled the dice for, the Jews need to get their weapons, and they need to band together, and they need to fight, and they need to protect themselves. And anybody who plans on attacking the Jewish people needs to know that they're going to be ready for a fight. And so that's what happens. They fight. Uh, They actually extend this period of fighting so they can fight some more, and in the end they start a new Jewish holiday called Purim meaning dice. And it's this sad irony for Haman at the end of the book that the, the object that he used to pick the date to exterminate the Jewish people actually becomes the name of the holiday where the Jewish people look back and remember what happened to Haman and celebrate how God saved them. And so in the end, Mordecai's exalted and he's second in in the kingdom. So let's think about Esther, negatives and positives. Here's a positive. She was a woman of character Courage and faith. A woman of character, courage, and faith. Look at Esther chapter 2, verse 20. You remember the part of the, uh, part of the story in Daniel? Daniel, by the way, lived about the same time, roughly, uh, in the ballpark that Esther did. He was taken into exile by the Babylonians. You remember the part where they make the law that no one can pray to anybody except the king, and they've done it to trap Daniel, and they know that he's, he's 
going to get himself in trouble. And the text says that even after they made the law, Daniel went up to his room and he opened the windows and he faced Jerusalem and he got down on, on his knees and he prayed as was his custom. And the text is telling you, look, Daniel didn't decide to obey when things got really rough. This was his character. This is who he was. And when things got tough, it was a natural overflow of who he had been all the while. The exact same thing is true of Esther. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. It says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. Why? It says, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. This is a woman of character. And she didn't find her character once she ended up in the harem of the king. Character was part of who she was from a child. Look, losing your parents, it would be really easy just to be bitter about that and to live your life angry and rebelling against authority and pushing back against everything. She didn't do that. Losing your home and being carried off into exile into a foreign country, it would have been angry to be easy to be angry and mad and bitter and just to say, forget it, God's abandoned us, I'm just going to do my own thing and do whatever I want to do. She doesn't do that. She lives a life that is characterized by obedience and submission to her adopted father, Mordecai. So she's a woman of character. She's a woman of courage. You've got to understand the real dilemma in her mind. I'm the queen No one knows I'm Jewish. If I just lay low, at least I could save my own skin. And look, we read the story and we know when she walked into his presence, he gave her the thumbs up and it all worked out and they all lived happily ever after in the end. But she didn't know any of that. What she knew is that the last queen that defied this king ended up being cut out of the family. She knew the character of her husband and she knew I could very easily walk in and he could give me the thumbs down or he could lower the scepter or give the word or however it happened and I could just be clean cut off. And she also knew I could say absolutely nothing and I could live even though all of you died. So she was a woman of courage and this great line she she utters where she says, if I perish, I perish. Ultimately, she's a woman of faith. And I think ultimately it's what Mordecai said when he says, who knows Maybe you haven't just been put in this place for such a time as this. You know, I'm not trying to play God, he says. But maybe this is why you're here in the first place, to save us. And she has faith in God and his plan. And here's the beautiful thing about the book. God is never mentioned. From the beginning to the end, his name never shows up. But every time you read one of these things that seems like, oh, and this just so happened this way, you realize that's God. God did that. And Esther begins to put the pieces together and she realizes God has put me here. At this time, raised by this man, carried away to this country at this particular moment so that we can be done with this threat that's been plaguing Israel all these centuries, all the way back to Moses, all the way back to Saul. All the way to the present time, now we're going to be done with it. And she has faith that God has put her there at the right place at the right time. Here's a negative, and this is all I can come up with from what the the text tells us openly. Esther was able to save her people from their enemies, but she was not able to save her people from their sin. That may not be a negative, but it's at least a limitation on who she was and what she was able to do or not do for the people. She saved them from Haman, saved them from their enemies, but not from their sin. I'll let you look these verses up. Ezra chapter 10. You remember I told you the back half of Ezra actually happens after the book of Esther. Ezra 10, when Ezra goes back, he starts preaching the word, and all the people are just broken by their sin. They hear the law of God, and they say, we are a million miles away from this. And they're broken. They're, they're still wrapped up in their own sin. 
And you read it and you say, well, this is, this is encouraging. But then you keep reading and you get to Nehemiah and it's just the same old story, same old cycle over and over and over again. Nehemiah does his best to shake some spiritual sense into the people, but he can't do it. And then you get all the way up into the New Testament, which is right around the corner at this point. John the Baptist shows up and the first thing John the Baptist says to the people is, you got to repent. You're wicked, sinful people. Look, Esther saved you from Haman, the Agagite, but he could, she couldn't save you from your sins. And so there's a limit to what she was able to do, and that's where the book points us to Jesus. So we'll end with these two thoughts. First one is this. Esther rose to power for such a time as this, and Jesus was born in the fullness of time. Both showed up at just the right time. Not too early, not too late but exactly when God intended them to be, where they were, when they were. We've already read Esther 4.14. Look at Galatians 4.4 with me. Galatians 4.4. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And it all happened at the beginning of verse 4 in the fullness of time. When the exact right moment came, God carried out his plan. And we've seen that week after week after week when we've gone through the Old Testament. We've looked at the period of judges that is so dark and so depressing and so twisted. And we've seen right in the midst of that, here's Ruth. Like this one bright spot that shows up at just the right time. To give the people hope. You see it in the book of Esther. Where things just look like this is the end. There's a plan. There's a decree. The Jewish people are going to be wiped out. This messianic line is going to come to an end. And right at the right time. In the perfect right place. In the exact right situation. Here's Esther. And God sends her at the right time. The same idea is true of Jesus. Last idea is this. Esther Esther risked her life to save her people. While Jesus gave his life to save his people. And I really mean this to be a bit of a contrast. And that Esther really wasn't sure how it was going to go. She knew that. She knew I could go to the king's presence and it could go great or it could go south real quick. Jesus didn't wonder. There was never any possibility that it was going to go great. He knew from the get-go, Luke 19.10, I'm here to seek and save the lost. Mark 10, 45, I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. John 10, 11, I'm the good shepherd and I'm here to lay down my life for the sheep. Nobody's going to take it from me, but I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. That's my mission. That's my purpose. That's why I'm here. And there was certainty in that. And he came to give his life to save his people. So that's the book of Esther. That's the story of Esther. She is a great hero in the Old Testament, but ultimately not the one that the people were looking for or waiting for, but another hero along the way that pointed them forward to Jesus.